preterm labor this is uh, how do we diagnose preterm labor we say when the estimated gestational age is greater than 20 weeks and less than 37 weeks so between 20 to 37 weeks number two when we have regular uterine contractions at frequent intervals number three we have documented cervical change or appreci appreciable cervical dilatation or effacement pathogenesis so we say labor is the process of coordinated uterine contractions leading to progressive cervical effacement and dilatation by which the fetus and placenta are expelled preterm labor now is defined as labor occurring after 20 weeks but before 37 weeks of gestation regular and contractions that occur at frequent intervals define preterm labor the uterine contractions need not to be painful to cause cervical change and may manifest themselves as abdominal lightening lower back pain or pelvic pressure additionally there must be demonstrated cervical effacement or dilatation to meet the diagnosis of preterm labor generally more than four contractions per hour are needed to cause cervical change it is important to distinguish preterm labor from other similar entities things like cervical incompetence which is cervical change in the absence of uterine contractions and preterm uterine contractions which are uterine contraction in the absence of cervical change because the treatment of these conditions differ differ with the treatment of ptl so cervical incompetence may require sacrilege placement and preterm uterine contractions without cervical changes generally a self-limiting phenomena that resolves spontaneously and requires no intervention if ruptured membranes accompany preterm labor these cases are classified as preterm premature rupture of membranes preterm birth complicates approximately 12 percent of all pregnancies it's the number one cause of neonatal morbidity and mortality and causes 75 percent of neonatal deaths that are not caused by congenital anomalies so it is a serious thing 13 percent of all infants are classified as low birth weight i.e less than 2.5 kgs of whom 25 percent are mature are mature low birth weights infants and approximately 75 percent are truly premature the latter group accounts for nearly two-thirds of infant deaths approximately 30 percent of preterm births are due to miscalculation of gestational age or to medical intervention required by the mother or the fetus the care of premature infants is costly compared with term infants those born prematurely suffer greatly increased morbidity and mortality thus every effort is made to prevent or inhibit preterm labor if preterm labor cannot be inhibited or if it's best that it's allowed to continue it should be conducted with the least possible trauma to the mother and the baby many obstructive medical and anatomic disorders are associated with preterm labor the cause of preterm labor in 50 percent of pregnancies however is idiopathic what the next one is now what are the risk factors associated with preterm labor one divided into one obstetric complications 
two medical complications three surgical complications four genital tract anomalies and lastly urinary tract infections so one under obstetric complications we have the the mother in a previous or current pregnancy has severe hypertensive hypertensive state of pregnancy two anatomic disorders of the placenta vitu kama abruccio placenta placenta previa circumvallate placenta three we have placental insufficiency four we have premature rupture of membranes five polyhydramnios or oligohydramnios we have we have previous premature or low birth weight infant we have low socio economic status we have maternal age below 18 years or above 40 years <clears throat> we have low pregnancy weight we have non white race we have multiple pregnancy we have short interval between the pregnancy this should be before below 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 3 months so inadequate or excessive weight gain during pregnancy we have previous abortion and lastly we have previous laceration of the cervix or uterus that's under obstetric complications number 2 we have medical complications which include things like pulmonary or systemic hypertension we have renal disease number 2 we have heart diseases number 3 we have infections ee pyelonephritis acute systemic infection number 2 3 you have urinary tract infections you have genital tract infections things like gonorrhea herpes mycoplasmosis things like that we have phytotoxic infections things like cmv infection toxoplasmosis we have listerosis we have maternal systemic infections things like pneumonia influenza and malaria we have maternal intraabdominal sepsis things like appendicitis cholecystitis diverticulitis we have heavy cigarette smoking we have alcoholism or drug addiction we have severe anemia we have malnutrition or obesity we have leaking benign cystic teratoma perforated gastritis or duodenal ulcer is another cause adnexal torsion and lastly we have maternal trauma or burns under surgical complications we have any intraabdominal procedure Number 2 we have colonization of the cervix. Number 3 you have previous incision in uterus or cervix things like cesarean delivery. Under genital tract anomalies which is the least but not the last. You have biconnoid subsepsis or uniconnoid uterus and you have congenital cervical incompetency. Lastly under this this subtopic we have urinary tract infections things like chlamydia Trachomatis. We have Treponema pallidum. We have Mycoplasma. We have Neisseria gonorrhea. We have bacterial vaginosis. We have GBS. We have Gardnerella vaginitis. How do we prevent PTL? So we start with a sad note. Unfortunately, there are few interventions known to prevent this PTL. So for any woman with a history of prior spontaneous preterm birth. There is evidence indicating that progestin administered via either number 1, so progestin administered via 1, vaginal suppositories of progestin or 2, weekly intramuscular intramuscular injections of 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone caprot starting at 16 to 20 weeks until approximately 36 to 37 weeks reduces the risk of recurrent preterm birth by approximately 30%. Additionally, vaginal progesterone may also 
reduce the risk of preterm birth in women found to have a short cervix on transvaginal ultrasound in the mid semester what are the clinical findings of ptl clinical findings of ptl number one under a it is symptoms and signs of ptl a we have uterine contractions so regular uterine contractions at frequent intervals as documented by tocometer or uterine palpation generally more than two in one half hour yes those are the symptoms number one is uterine contractions number two you have dilation and effacement of cervix these can be established by clinical examination or by transvaginal ultrasound so documented cervical change in dilation or effacement of at least one centimeter or a cervix that is well effaced and dilated so at least two centimeters on admission is considered diagnostic on transvaginal ultrasound a cervix length of less than 2.5 centimeter is also suggestive of ptl three we have other other signs of ptl so many patients present with bloody mucus vaginal discharge called the bloody shock more significant vaginal bleeding should be evaluated for abrutio abrutio placenta or placenta previa additionally patients may report an increase in vaginal discharge of passage of their mucus plugs that was symptoms and signs. Now, B, we are going to evaluation. So, evaluation of this patient with PTL should include determination of the following. A, we have gestational age. This should be between 20 to 37 weeks to diagnose PTL. So, there's estimated gestational age, which should be calculated based on the patient's LMP or date of conception, if known. Number two, we have fetal weight care must be taken to determine fetal size by ultrasonography. Three, presenting part. These are the things you need to evaluate. The presenting part must be noted because abnormal presentation is more common in earlier stages of gestation. We have fetal monitoring, so we need to do a continuous fetal monitoring to ascertain the fetal well-being. Number four, we have tocodynamometry so tocodynamometry should be performed to confirm the presence and frequency of contractions yes lastly we have physical examination under b evaluation so physical examination should be performed to assess for cervical dilation ruptured membranes fundal fundal tenderness vaginal bleeding and fever C after evaluation. Now we go C to laboratory studies. What do you do in the lab? A you do a complete blood count with differentials. B you do a, you, you, the, the urine obtained by 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 catheter for urinalysis. So you do urinalysis, culture and sensitivity testing. C ultrasound examination for fetal size, position and placental placental location. For you do amniocentesis. This may be useful to ascertain fetal lung maturity in instances where the EGA is uncertain, that is A or B, in an instance where the size of the fetus is in conflict with the estimated date of conception. This means, this means the, the, the size of the fetus may be too small, suggesting intrauterine growth restriction, or too large, suggesting more advanced estimated gestation age, or three, 
under amniocent amniocentesis the the the, 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 the how it's performed number three is is if the fetus is more than 34 weeks ega so specifically still under laboratory studies amniotic fluid should be tested for lecithin sphingomyelin ratio the presence of phosphatidylglycerol fluorescence the, the presence of phosphatidylglycerol uh, on fluorescence polarization assay or lamella body count so the presence of phosphatidylglycerol the presence of fluorescent polarization assay you do that or lamella body count so amniocentesis should also be performed in instances in which choriamnonitis is suspected the fluid should be tested for gram stain bacterial culture to three glucose levels for cell count and if available interleukin six level yes still under lab now this number five you do a specular examination this should be performed on that woman so f number six now cervical cultures should be sent for gonorrhea and chlamydia yes uh, number seven a weight mount should be performed to look at the signs of bacterial vaginosis h group b streptococcus gbs cultures should be taken from vaginal and rectal mucosa a swab may also be used to test any fluid in the vagina to see if it's amniotic fluid prone hematologic workup in cases associated with vaginal bleeding that's the that's the second last the last thing you do a fetal fibronectin testing this is done to assess the risk of preterm birth in patients with preterm labor a cervical vaginal swab is taken to look for the presence of fetal fibronectin a negative test is essential at identifying women at low risk of imminent delivery that is within Two weeks so a positive fetal fibronectin test is less sensitive at predicting preterm birth the test may be useful at identifying patients at low risk of preterm birth who can be managed on outpatient basis what are the differential diagnosis in or ama of ptl so differential diagnosis include preterm contractions without labor things uh, like like preterm contraction without labor uh, meaning that contractions without any cervical change uh, another differentials in ptl you say uh, cervical insufficiency this means that uh, the cervical dilatation without any uterine contraction yes complications of ptl the primary complication of ptl is preterm birth and uh, the resulting prematurity related complications in the infant things like respiratory distress syndrome and neurologic injury the main part now treatment of ptl how do we manage this 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 thing so treatment generally comprises of expectant management and two we have interventions so we say decisions regarding management are made based on EGA yes and the existence of contraindication to suppressing the preterm labor so these contraindications include this means that under this contraindication you allow the labor to proceed 
a we have maternal factors yes so if the if the if the if the mother is has a severe hypertensive disease things like acute exacerbation of chronic hypertension eclampsia and severe preeclampsia you allow labor to proceed two we have pulmonary or cardiac disease things like pulmonary edema adult respiratory distress syndrome valvular diseases tachyarrhythmias you allow labor so we have advanced cervical dilation above 4 cm una allow so we have number 4 maternal hemorrhage things like a brutal placenta placenta previa disseminated intravascular coagulation that is dic yes prom when you have fever of unknown origin you allow yes you allow it to continue yes so uh, under contraindications b now we have fetal factors yes so fetal death or little an little anomaly two we have fetal distress three we have intrauterine infection things like chorioamnionitis four we have therapy that affects the fetus yes things like fetal distress due to attempted suppression of labor number five we have estimated fetal weight above 2.5 kgs six we have erythroblastosis fetalis or fetal hydrops these are contraindications to ptl to 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 to, interve to intervention you just allow the labor to proceed lastly we have severe intrauterine growth retardation as fetal factor so once the patient is determined not to have these contraindications maternal and fetal contraindications the management depends on fetal gestational age generally management falls into two categories expectant management as i said and two intervention so for pregnancies between 24 weeks to 37 weeks so for pregnancies between this 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 time inter, uh, in, intervention with corticosteroids has been shown to reduce neonatal morbidity and mortality rates so corticosteroids 24 to 37 although the efficacy of tocolysis has been de debated it is generally accepted that a delay in delivery of 48 hours may be achieved at a minimum because this window can be used for corticosteroid administration for corticosteroid administration tocolysis is favored in many cases so for preterm preterm pregnancies between 20 to 23 weeks and uh, this pregnancy are less than 550 grams so extremes of preterm gestation age pose special problems fetuses of very preterm pregnancies maybe 20 to 33 weeks iga or estimated fetal weight less than 550 grams are generally not considered viable if this pregnancy can be continued a few weeks more the fetus will become viable but have an increased risk of morbidity if they are born in this pre viable period so for mothers who choose intervention they should be advised that intervention carries significant risks to the mother including the risk of prolonged bed rest and side effects of tocolysis so for bring, for pregnancies beyond 34 to 37 weeks and they are above 2.5 kgs hit uh, so 
the fetal survival rate in this in these types of pregnancy is within one percent of the survival rate at 37 weeks fetal morbidity morbidity is less severe and rarely a long-term cause of sequel furthermore corticosteroids have not been shown to be of benefit to fetuses this size yes so therefore expectant management is usually the recommended cause of function several factors should be considered when deciding between interventions and expectant management including things like the certainty of the deaths uh, estimated fetal weight number two three we have the presence of maternal problems that could delay fetal lung maturity things like diabetes mellitus and a family history of late onset respiratory distress syndrome the following is a protocol for management of pregnancies with preterm labor between 24 and 34 weeks between 24 and 34 weeks number one so also between 24 and 34 weeks this is what you do a bed rest the role of bed rest in the management of preterm labor is controversial is filled with controversy so analysis have failed to demonstrate prolongation of pregnancy so bed rest is associated with an increased risk of maternal thromboembolism at minimum bed rest may be advised particularly during the initial evaluation of an episode of preterm labor to allow for close fetal and maternal monitoring number two between 24 and 34 weeks you can do corticosteroids which is the administration of corticosteroids to accelerate fetal lung maturity uh, this has become standard between this 24 and so that four weeks uh, uh, at risk of uh, this between 24 and 34 weeks in women at risk of return delivery within the next one week or seven days so corticosteroids have been shown to decrease the incidence of these three things one neonatal respiratory distress number two intraventricular hemorrhages number three we have neonatal mortality steroids can be given according to one of two protocols yes of giving steroids so one you have beta methasone 12 mg intramuscular im every 24 hours for a total of two doses yes two dexamethasone 6 mg im every 12 hours for a total of four doses yes so the optimal benefits of antenatal corticosteroids are seen 24 hours after administration they peak at 48 hours and continue for at least seven days if corticosteroid therapy is successful and the labor continues beyond two weeks there is data suggesting that a single repeat cause of steroids may be beneficial if the risk of preterm birth is high and the pregnancy is below 33 weeks so you can add a repeat cause of steroids more than two doses however may be associated with fetal growth abnormalities and delayed sarcomotor development of the infant c you have tocolysis if the patient continues to contract and, and falls into a high-risk group based on a history of preterm birth positive fibronectin or a short service on transvaginal ultrasonography or changing dilatation on cervical examination tocolytic therapy may be initiated so these are the indications for tocolytic therapy 
when using tocolytics, the goals of treatment is to, these are the short-term goals now, is to one, continue the pregnancy for 48 hours after steroid administration, after which the maximum effect of steroid therapy can be achieved. The long goal, the long-term goal now, is to continue the pregnancy beyond 34-36 weeks, at which point the fetal morbidity and mortality are dramatically reduced and tocolysis can be discontinued. So, tocolytic therapy should be considered in the patient with cervical dilatation less than 5 cm. Uh, successful, successful tocolysis is generally considered fewer than 4 to 6 strain contractions per hour without further cervical change. The beta mimetics and nifedipine are the most common tocolytic agents. The decision to use a specific tocolytic agent should be considered because of contraindications and side effects associated with each agent. Yes, so these are the tocolytic agents. Mm, look at that graph. Uh, so beta mimetics number one, these agents act actively on beta receptors to relax the uterus. Maternal medical contraindications to to the use of beta adrenergic agents include cardiac disease number one two hyperthyroidism three uncontrolled hypertension or pulmonary hypertension four asthma requiring symptomatic drugs or corticosteroids for relief that's asthma uh, five we have uncontrolled diabetes six we have chronic hepatic or renal disease so the commonly observed effects during IV administration are palpitations, tremors, nervousness, and restlessness. Tabutalin is the beta mimetic in common use. Tabutalin. So two, we have magnetic sulfate under tocolytic agents. Although magnesium sulfate's mechanism for action is unknown. Magnesium sulfate appears to inhibit calcium uptake into smooth muscle cells, reducing the uterine contractility. The efficacy of magnesium sulfate is debated, but several studies have shown that its effects are comparable to that of beta-mimetics, and it may be better tolerated than beta-mimetics. So magnesium sulfate appears less likely to cause serious side effects than beta-mimetics, but, but its therapeutic range is close to the range at which it will cause respiratory and cardiac depression. Therefore, patients who, who, who are receiving this magnesium sulfate should be monitored closely for sense of toxicity with frequent checks of, uh, of the things like deep tendon reflexes, pulmonary examinations, and uh, strict calculations of patients' fluid balance. These effects may be reversed by calcium gluconate. gluconate which is which is 10 mil, 10 mils of 10 percent solution is given iv to reverse the effects of magnesium sulfate and this antidote should be kept at the bedside when magnesium sulfate is used three calcium channel blockers calcium channel blockers such as nifedipine work as tocolytics by mechanism inhibiting calcium uptake into the uterine smooth muscle cells via voltage-dependent channels, thereby reducing uterine contractility. Studies have shown that nifedipine uh, is equally 
or more efficacious than beta mimetics in preterm labor. Other advantages are low maternal side effects and ease of administration. Mifedipine can be given by mouth. That is ease of administration. So a common regimen of autocolysis is nifedipine 20 mg by mouth, then 10 to 20 mg by mouth every 6 hours until contractions diminish sufficiently. So, uh, number 4, we have prostaglandin synthase inhibitors. The use of prostaglandin synthase inhibitors, i.e. indomethacin, have been limited due to their side effects. Yes. So indomethacin works, uh, this is the mechanism of action of indomethacin, works by inhibiting prostaglandin synthesis, an important mediator in uterine smooth muscle contractility. The advantage of indomethacin is its ease of administration and its potent tocolytic activity. However, it is associated with oligohydromnios and premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. A common regimen of autocolysis is intermethacin 100 mg per rectum loading dose or 50 mg by mouth loading dose, then 25 to 50 mg by mouth or rectum every 4 to 6 hours, so depending on the, on the route of administration. So because of the potentially of the potential of the potentiality to cause serious side effects many centers limit the use of limit the use to infants less than 32 weeks ega and its duration to less than two days 48 hours so another subtopic is treatment with multiple tocolytic all tocolytics under treatment with multiple tocolytics. So all tocolytics have significant failure rates. Therefore, if a tocolytic appears to be failing, that agent should be stopped and another agent should be tried. The use of multiple tocolytics at the same time appears to have an additional tocolytic effect, but also appears to increase the risk of serious side effects. So an example of treatment with multiple tocolytics is Magnesium sulfate in combination with nifedipine theoretically can cause serious maternal hypotension. Likewise, magnesium sulfate supplemented by one to two doses of tabutaline may be safe and effective, but sustained treatment with the two can increase a patient's risk of pulmonary edema. Patients unresponsive to tocolytic therapy may have an unrecognized choriamnonitis or placental abrasion conditions that may be contracted for tocolytic use. So, so, so the results of tocolytic therapy. This is another subtopic. So with all tocolytics, a point may be reached where further therapy is not indicated. This may be due to an adverse maternal or fetal response to the progress of labor. Thus, if cervical dilatation reaches 5 cm, the treatment should be continued, should be con considered a failure and abandoned. Conversely, if labor resumes after a period of quiescence, treatment should be carefully considered because the recrudence of contraindications may be a sign of intrauterine infection. Antibiotics to use in PTL. So antibiotic therapies as a treatment of preterm labor has been shown has shown no benefit in delaying preterm birth in the in this population of patients. So patients with preterm labor should be started on antibiotics for prevention of neonatal 
GBS infection if the patient if the patient's GBS status is positive or unknown. Penicillin or ampicillin should be used as the first line agents. Cefazolin, clindamycin, erythromycin, vancomycin can be used if the patient is allergic to penicillin. Magnesium sulfate for fetal or neonatal needle protection. This is another subtopic. So several recent large trials have shown a reduced risk of cerebral palsy in fetus exposed to magnesium sulfate in utero. There is reported there is reported a significant reduction in moderate to severe cerebral palsy in children at or beyond two years of age who received magnesium sulfate immediately before delivery. Therefore, it becomes reasonable to offer magnesium sulfate to any woman between 24-34 weeks of gestation immediately before delivery to reduce the risk of adverse neuro neurological outcomes. Uh -huh. So what's the criteria of admission to magnesium sulfate? Therapy for fetal or neonatal neuroprotection. Number one, two, three. So number one, you have preterm birth. Preterm birth is anticipated within two to twenty-four hours. We have gestational age of twenty-four to thirty-four weeks, thirty-one weeks, twenty-four to thirty-one weeks. Number three, we have any specific contraindication to magnesium sulfate therapy has been ruled out. Ruled out. So that's the criteria. So the protocol. How do we do it? So you begin. Having infusion of magnesium sulfate loading dose 6g over 6 gram over 20 to 30 minutes, followed by a maintenance infusion of 2 gram per hour. If delivery has not occurred after 12 hours and this no longer and, and is no longer considered imminent, the infusion may be discontinued. If more than six hours have passed since the continuation of magnesium sulfate and delivery is again believed to be imminent, another dose might be given followed by maintenance dose. How do you conduct labor and delivery in PTL? So premature infants younger than 34 weeks should be delivered in a hospital equipped for, equipped for neonatal intensive care. Although the although uh, the, the route of delivery for very low birth weight infants is undecided. There is no conclusive evidence of a benefit to routine caesarean delivery. So what are the indications for caesarean delivery uh, or, 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 or the usual obstetrical, obstetrical uh, of, what are indications for CS delivery? Yeah. These are the usual obstetrical indications and include non-reassuring fetal status, number one. Number two, this malpresentation. Then number three, this history of a prior cesarean section. Yes. So code, so this under code pH and blood gases. APGAR scores are often low in low birth weight babies. This finding does not indicate asphyxia or compromised status, but merely reflects the maturity of the physiological systems. Therefore, it is crucial to obtain code pH blood gases measurement for premature and other high-risk infants in order to document the status at birth. What's the prognosis of PTL? Excellent neonatal care in the, in the de delivery room and nursery will do much to ensure good prognosis for the preterm infant. What are the possible fetal consequences of preterm labor? Number one, respiratory distress. 
Two, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Three, persistent or patent dactyloseriosis. Four, necrotizing enterocolitis. Five, intraventricular hemorrhage. Six, hypothermia. Seven, hypoglycemia. Eight, jaundice. Nine, feeding difficulties. Ten, neurological impairment. Eleven, apnea. Twelve, retrolental fibroplasia. Eleven, disability and handicap. Twelve, neonatal sepsis and death. So, diagnosis of PTL symptoms. This is now under the quality obstetric care booklet. Yes. So, the symptoms of PTL. Now, this is another another book now. So, one. How do you diagnose? The symptoms include for PTL. One, complaints of uterine contraction. Two, passage of show or vaginal bleeding. Three, increased vaginal discharge. Four, there's lower abdominal pain or cramping. Five, the sensation of vaginal pressure. The following history should be should therefore be taken of any patient with PTL. So you ask the mother about her previous pregnancies. Yes, you ask her, has she had previous premature deliveries? Have you had? Two, you ask about the last menstrual period and the expected date of delivery. You calculate the EDD. Three, you ask the mother if there is any lower abdominal pain radiating to the back. Yeah? So you want to you want to differentiate is this labor or this just uterine contractions? And when did they start and how often? Yes, and are they strong or mild? Four, you ask you ask them is there any history of previous rupture of membranes? If there is an history, you ask about the duration, the amount of flu. Five, you ask if the mother experiences any bleeding. If they do, how much bleeding? Yes. And last, you ask if there's any changes in the fetal movement. What are the signs of preterm labor? The following signs are usually indicative of preterm labor. Number one, palpable uterine activity. Two, engagement of the presenting part. Three, the show. This may be blood stained. Four, the cervical dilatation and effacement. Five, these bulging membranes or the rupture of membranes. So on a physical examination, uh, this is what you do. This is what should, it should entail, a physical exam in PTL. So one, check the vital signs. We to come a temperature, pulse, respiration, blood pressure, etc. Number two, you need to measure the fundal height. To try to estimate the gestation the, the gestational age by weeks. Three, you palpate the uterus to determine the frequency, duration, and strength of the contractions, as well as the position of the fetus. You determine also the presentation by palpation. Number four, you take and record the fetal heart rate. Five, you inspect the vulva and see if there is leakage of amniotic fluid or blood. Seven. You do a vaginal speculum examination or assessment. So you assess the service and the membrane status for swab taking. Lastly, uh, a digital exam may be useful, but it's not necessary. Investigations in PTL. The following are the basic investigations required in a patient with PTL. So number one, you, have, you take a blood side for malaria, 
parasites in malaria endemic areas number two you do a you do a you take urine samples for microscope culture and sensitivity that is culture and sensitivity three you take swabs number one you take high a high vaginal swab for gram stain and culture two you take an endos endocervical swab for gonorrhea culture three you take an endocervical swab for chlamydia four you take four if uh, if if this genital infection is suspected you urethra and anorectal swabs are indicated as well number four uh, so any other investigation as per individual assessment you can do anything you feel like and then there's ultrasound for fetal assessment things like dating fetal anomalies anomalies presentation lika assessment to estimate the fetal weight things like that so management of preterm labor so here they're saying conservative management number one and two this active management so under conservative management this is done if the service is less than two centimeters dilated and includes one bed rest uh, if less than 34 weeks gestation an arrest bed rest number two you have you administer to the mother corticosteroids things like betamethasone or dexamethasone this is to improve fetal lung maturity and chances of neonatal survival yes so a note here is that corticosteroids should not be used in the presence of strong infection yes see under conservative management you sedate the mother then another point you administer tocolytic drugs to relax the uterine muscles things like iv salbutamol 10 mg in one liter iv fluid 10 drops per minute in case of contractions in case the contraction persists increase diffusion rate by 10 drops per minute every 30 minutes until contraction stops or the maternal pass exceeds 120 per minute then you treat any underlying causes contraindications so the contraindication for use of these tocolytic drugs include things like prom choriamnonitis fever of a known origin heart disease you have things like cardiac dysarrhythmias pyrotoxicosis you have preeclampsia you have severe antepartum hemorrhage cervical dilatation of more than two centimeters fetal distress or uterine death under active management, this is recommended if the cervical dilatations are more than two centimeters. Two, if there's fetal distress. Three, if there's intrauterine death. It involves the following: you administer corticosteroids in anticipation of preterm delivery. Contraindication two: treatment with corticosteroids are maternal infection. One, two, hypertension. Three maternal heart disease or the rupture of membranes two you commence administration of antibiotics three you rupture the membranes a note to take here do not rupture the membranes if this uh, this uh, if if you suspect intrauterine fetal death don't rupture the membranes then you monitor labor in the usual manner with special consideration for maternal nutrition and hydration and fetal condition uh, so a cesarean section is sometimes indicated for obvious reasons but 
vaginal delivery is usually preferable. When the head presents at the vulva, perform a wide episiotomy to prevent intracranial injury. So then you manage the preterm baby according to the state standards. A note here, preterm babies are more susceptible to sepsis, hypothermia, and hypoglycemia. For this reason, it is very important to educate the mother and the family about the case. What do you do now? Uh, so when when so you need to allow the labor to progress if number one the gestation is more than 37 weeks if number two the surface is more than three centimeter dilated number three if there is active bleeding uh, if the fetus is distressed dead or has an abnormality incompatible with life. Oh, number five, if there is evidence of chorioamnionitis. Last thing, if the patient has severe preeclampsia or eclampsia, you allow the labor to progress, my friend. That is PTL for you, my friend. Yeah? Hypertension in pregnancy in the OB series with the well, not only Mugo number nine. So hypertension disorders of pregnancy rank among the leading causes of maternal morbidity and mortality. Approximately 15% of maternal deaths are linked to hypertension. So severe hypertension uh, increases the mother's risk of the following things like heart attack, Cardiac failure number two, cerebral vascular accidents number three, renal failure. So the fetus and the neonate also are at risk are at an increased risk from complications including poor placental transfer of oxygen, fetal growth restriction, number three, preterm birth, number four, placental abruption, number five, stillbirth and neonatal death so hypertension is defined as a sustained blood pressure higher than 140 over 90. in the non-pregnant patient essential hypertension accounts for more than 90 percent of cases however many other conditions must be considered in the pregnant state hypertension may be Many, many other conditions might be considered. So in the pregnant state, that's how we do it. In the pregnant state, hypertension may be attributed to various causes grouped into one, idiopathic, two, vascular disorders, three, endocrine disorders, four, renal disorders, and lastly, connective tissue disorders. So under idiopathic, something called essential hypertension. Number two, Vascular disorders, we have renovascular hypertension and aortic coarctation. Under endocrine disorders, we have diabetes mellitus, hyperthyroidism, pheochromocytoma, primary hyperaldosteronism, hyperparathyroidism, Cushing's syndrome. Under renal disorders, we have diabetic nephropathy, chronic renal failure, acute renal failure, tubular necrosis, corticonecrosis, pyelonephritis, chronic, chronic glomerulonephritis, 
nephrotic syndrome, polycystic kidney diseases. Under connective tissue disorders, we have SLE, that is systemic lupus erythromatosis. In addition, unique forms of hypertension, gestational hyper, unique forms of hypertension, i.e., gestational hypertension and preeclampsia, occur only during pregnancy. So, gestational hypertension, this is characterized by elevated blood pressure diagnosed for the first time during pregnancy in patients without evidence of proteinuria. Preeclampsia is characterized by the onset of hypertension and proteinuria, usually during the third trimester of pregnancy. A point to note that's a need be is that edema occurs too frequently in normal pregnancy to be useful as a marker of preeclampsia. So management of preeclampsia differs from management of other forms of hypertension during pregnancy. Therefore, it is very important to distinguish preeclampsia from other forms of hypertension that may complicate a pregnancy. What is chronic hypertension? So chronic hypertension is a... so classification of hypertension during pregnancy can be viewed as a continuum this is under chronic hypertension on one end of the spectrum is the patient with hypertension that was present before pregnancy or was recognized during the first half of pregnancy does not worsen appreciate appreciably during pregnancy and persists after delivery that's chronic hypertension preeclampsia so, a patient with no evidence of chronic hypertension who experiences the abrupt onset of hypertension and proteinuria, 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 late in pregnancy followed by complete resolution, resolution postpartum. In this case, the hypertension observed during pregnancy may be as a result of factors related entirely to pregnancy and not to an underlying medical cause. Between these two extremes are gestational hypertension and cases in which varying degrees of preeclampsia are superimposed upon varying degrees of chronic hypertension. These broad categories have some value, value in estimating the risk. So isolated, mild to moderate chronic hypertension may have little effect on pregnancy outcome. So severe hypertension of any kind increases the risk to the mother and the fetus. The high risk are associated, are associated with preeclampsia and eclampsia. So how do we classify hypertension in pregnancy? So definition of hypertension. When you have mild hypertension, your systolic BP is above 140 or your diastolic BP is above 90. When you have severe hypertension, your systolic BP is above 160 and diastolic is above 110 or diastolic 110. So you can eh, or, diast or, or, or diastolic. So chronic hypertension Hypertension with onset before pregnancy or before the 20th week of gestation. Number two, there's the use of antihypertensive medication before pregnancy. Number three, there's persistence of hypertension beyond 12 weeks postpartum. 12 weeks postpartum. What is preeclampsia? This is hypertension that occurs after 20 weeks of gestation in a woman with previously normal blood pressure. This is totally 
BP is above 140 or diastolic BP is above 90 on two occasions at least six hours apart. Proteinuria, which is defined as urinary excretion of above or 0.3 grams protein in a 24-hour urine specimen. Uh, so this 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 yeah 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 so this this finding usually correlates to the finding of one plus or greater on dipstick not not nb nb is that edema is no longer a diagnostic criteria it happens too much it's a too it has it has it is a too frequent occurrence to be used as a diagnostic criteria so another nb a systolic rise of 30 millimeters of mercury or a diastolic rise of 15 millimeters of mercury is no longer and a diagnostic criteria in number two so eclampsia so eclampsia we say it's a new onset grand mal seizures in a woman with preeclampsia that cannot be attributed to other causes superimposed preeclampsia eclampsia so this is preeclampsia or eclampsia that occurs in a woman with a pre-existing chronic hypertension what is gestational hypertension? This hypertension detected for the first time after mid-pregnancy, distinguished from preeclampsia by the absence of proteinuria. So, working diagnosis usually during pregnancy. This is a working diagnosis usually during pregnancy. Transient hypertension of pregnancy. This is defined as gestational hypertension that resolved by 12 weeks postpartum. If proteinuria develops in a patient with gestational hypertension, the diagnosis is preeclampsia. If gestational hypertension does not resolve by 12 weeks postpartum, the diagnosis is chronic hypertension. Man, gestational hypertension. <clears throat> uh, so the essentials of diagnosis in, in gestational hypertension. We are you say maternal blood pressure elevation of above or 140 millimeters of mercury systolic or above or 90 millimeters of mercury diastolic on two occasions six hours apart in a previously normotensive woman uh, at or above 20 weeks gestation and when uh, the second point under diagnosis is no evidence of proteinuria Pathogenesis. So gestational hypertension appears to affect approximately 6% of pregnancies. The pathogenesis of gestational hypertension is unclear and it is equally unclear whether gestational hypertension represents an early stage of preeclampsia or whether it is an early separate disease entity. Gestational hypertension is considered to be a provisional diagnosis as many women with gestational hypertension will go on to be diagnosed with either preeclampsia or chronic hypertension. If preeclampsia has not developed has not developed and the maternal blood pressure has returned to normal by 12 weeks postpartum by 12 week postpartum, then a diagnosis of transient hypertension of pregnancy is made. Clinical findings of gestational hypertension so a diagnosis of gestational hypertension is made when one maternal blood pressure is elevated to above 140 millimeters of mercury systolic or 90 above or 90 millimeters of mercury diastolic on two occasions six hours apart in a previously normotensive woman at or above 20 weeks gestation number two 
there is no evidence of proteinuria. So we say gestational hypertension is classified as mild or severe based on the degree of blood pressure elevation. It is considered to be severe when the systolic blood pressure is persistently above or at 160 millimeters of mercury oil or the diastolic blood pressure is persistently 110 millimeters of mercury. Complications of gestational hypertension. Gestational hypertension. So approximately 15 to 25% of women diagnosed gestational, with gestational hypertension go on to develop preeclampsia. So women with mild gestational hypertension do not appear to be at an increased risk of preterm birth, intrauterine growth restriction, abruption, or stillbirth. Women with severe gestational hypertension, however, are at increased risk of adverse outcomes, including preterm birth, intrauterine growth restriction, and placental abruption. The treatment of gestational hypertension is so, given the 15 to 25% risk of progression to preeclampsia, treatment includes close surveillance of signs and symptoms of preeclampsia. Patient education regarding symptoms of preeclampsia, these symptoms include things like headaches, 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 visual changes, epigastric pain, abnormal pains. So patient education is recommended, highly recommended. So initial evaluation include a 24-hour urine collection to confirm the absence of significant proteinuria and serum laboratory evaluation to evaluate hepatic transaminases, creatinine, hematocrit, platelets, and lactic acid dehydrogenase. Derangements in any of these findings will be indicative of a diagnostic of preeclampsia as opposed to gestational hypertension. Antihypertensives are not recommended in women with mild gestational hypertension as they have not been shown to improve the outcomes. Delivery is recommended at 39 to 40 weeks. Yeah. So because severe hypertension is associated with an increased risk of adverse outcomes at a rate similar to that in severe preeclampsia, women with severe gestational hypertension are generally managed the same way as women with severe preeclampsia prognosis of gestational, gestational hypertension. So most women experience normalization of their blood pressure within two weeks after delivery. Approximately 15% of women diagnosed with hypertension will have persistently elevated blood pressure uh, after 12, 12 weeks after delivery and will meet the diagnostic criteria of chronic hypertension. The recurrence rate of gestational hypertension in future pregnancies is approximately 25%. Doing <clears throat> with preeclampsia, and you say, how do you diagnose preeclampsia? You say, you diagnose preeclampsia when maternal blood pressure is elevated to about 140 above or 140 millimeters of mercury systolic or above 90 or at or above 90 millimeters of mercury diastolic on two occasions six hours apart so the next essential diagnosis is proteinuria which is above or 300 mg in a 24-hour urine specimen the pathogenesis of preeclampsia is like this so what happens 
uh, is that preeclampsia complicates about 5 to 7% of all pregnancies. So preeclampsia occurs with increased frequency among young nulliparous women. However, the frequency distribution is bimodal with the second peak occurring in multiparous women greater than 35 years of age. Among daughters of preeclamptic women, the risk of preeclampsia is significantly higher than the population risk. The risk factors for preeclampsia include risk factors for preeclampsia age, which is below 20 or above 35 years of age. We have two nulliparity, we have three multiple gestation, four hydatiform mole, five when you have diabetes mellitus, six thyroid disease, seven chronic hypertension, eight when you have renal disease, nine collagen vascular disease we have anti-phospholipid syndrome and you have a family history of preeclampsia so normal pregnancy is associated with decreased maternal sensitivity to endogenous vasopressors early in pregnancy uh, sensitivity to endogenous vasopressors early in pregnancy this leads to expansion of the maternal intravascular, intravascular space and a decline in blood pressure throughout the first half of pregnancy with a nadir at mid-gestation. Thereafter, continued expansion of intravascular volume leads to a gradual rise in the blood pressure to pre-pregnancy levels by term. So women destined to, to develop preeclampsia do not exhibit normal refractories to endogenous vasopressors. As a result, normal expansion of intravascular space does not occur and the normal decline in blood pressure during the first half of pregnancy may be absent or attenuated. So despite the normal to elevated blood pressure, intravascular volume is reduced. The etiology of preeclampsia is not, is not known. However, a growing evidence that maternal endothelial injury, injury plays a central role in the disorder. Some reports suggest that endothelial damage in preeclampsia results in, de results in decreased endothelial production of prostaglandin I2, which is also called prostacycline. Uh, a potent, this is a potent vasodilator and inhibitor of planted, platelet aggregation. Endothelial cell injury exposes subendothelial collagen and can trigger platelet aggregation, activation, and release of platelet-derived thromboxane A2, a potent vasoconstrictor and stimulator of, of platelet aggregation, TXAA, a potent vasodilator and stimulator of platelet aggregation. Yes, so decreased prostacycline production by dysfunctional endothelial uh, dysfunctional endothelial cells and increased thromboxane A2 released by activated platelets and trophoblasts may be responsible for the reversal of the normal ratio of prostacycline and thromboxane A2 observed in preeclampsia. The predominance of thromboxane A2 may contribute to the vasoconstriction and hypertension that are central features of the disorder. Elevated Intravascular pressure combined with damaged vascular endothelium results in movement of fluid from the intravascular to the extravascular space, leading to edema in the brain, retina, lungs, liver, and subcutaneous tissue. 
So hypertension and glomerular endothelial damage leads to proteinuria. The resultant decrease in intravascular colloid osmotic pressure contributes to further loss of intravascular fluid. Hemoconcentration is reflected in a rising hematocrit. Consumption of platelets and activation of the clotting cascade at sites of endothelial damage may lead to thrombocytopenia and disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC. Fibrin monomers produced by the coagulation cascade may precipitate in the microvasculation, leading to microangiopathic hemolysis and elevation of the serum lactate dehydrogenase levels. Cerebral edema, vasoconstriction, and capillary endothelial damage may lead to hyperreflexia, clonus, convulsions, or hemorrhage. Hepatic edema and or ischemia may lead to hepatocellular injury and elevation of serum transaminases and lactate dehydrogenase levels. The right upper quadrant or epigastric pain observed in severe preeclampsia is thought to be caused by stretching of glycine capsule by hepatic edema or hemorrhage. Intravascular fluid loss across damaged capillary endothelium in the lungs may cause pulmonary edema. In the retina, vasoconstriction and or edema may lead to visual disturbances, retinal detachment or blindness. Movement of fluid from the intravascular space into the subcutaneous tissue produces the characteristic non-dependent edema of preeclampsia, non-dependent edema of preeclampsia. So endothelial damage appears to be capable of triggering a cascade of events culminating in the multi-organ system dysfunction observed in preeclampsia. However, the cause of endothelial damage remains speculative. So preeclampsia exerts an effect on many different organ systems including number one brain so pathologic finding in preeclampsia include in the brain system include cerebr in, in, include induced cerebral injury in, in, include include pathology findings in preeclampsia in the preeclampsia induced cerebral injury include things like fibrinoid necrosis two thrombosis Three, microinfarcts. Four, petechial hemorrhage. Primarily in the cerebral cortex, cerebral edema may be observed. So this happens primarily in the cerebral cortex, the four things, but cerebral edema may be observed. Two, the second organ is the heart. So preeclampsia is characterized by, in the heart system, absence of normal intravascular volume expansion. Two, a reduction in normal circulating blood volume. Three, a loss of normal refractoriness to endogenous vasopressors, including angiotensin II. So preeclampsia has been described variously as a state of abnormally high cardiac output and low systemic vascular resistance. A state of abnormally low cardiac output and a high system vascular resistance or a state of high cardiac output and high systemic vascular resistance. These Divergent observations underscore the complexity of this disorder. The third system is the lungs. So, alteration in colloid oncotic pressure, capillary endothelial integrity at intravascular hydrostatic pressure in preeclampsia predispose to non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema.
in women with preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension pre-existing hypertensive cardiac disease may exacerbate the situation superimposing cardiogenic pulmonary edema on on non-cardiogenic preeclampsia related pulmonary edema excessive administration of IV fluids and postpartum mobilization of accumulated extravascular fluid also increase the risk of pulmonary edema in eclampsia pulmonary injury may result from aspiration of gastric contents leading to pneumonia pneumonitis or adult respiratory distress syndrome for the system is the liver so histologic lesions in the liver are characterized by sinusoidal fibrin depositions in the peripotal areas with surrounding hemorrhage and portal capillary thrombi. Centrilobular necrosis may result from reduced perfusion from reduced perfusion. Inflammation is not characteristic. So subscapular hematomas may develop in this system. So in severe cases involving hepatocellular necrosis and uh, and In severe cases involving hepatocellular necrosis and disseminated intravascular coagulation, intrahepatic hematomas may progress to liver rupture. Right upper quadrant pain or epigastric pain as are classic symptoms attributed to stretching of the glycons capsule. So elevation of serum transaminases is a hallmark of help. This syndrome help H-E-L-P. It, 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 it's about hemolysis elevated liver enzymes and low platelets this syndrome so number five we have the kidneys so distinct histologic changes have been described in the kidneys of women with preeclampsia the classic renal lesion of preeclampsia uh, glomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomeroglomero
to contribute to the maintenance of reduced vascular tone in pregnancy. Calcium supplementation during pregnancy has been proposed as a means to, as a means to prevent eclampsia. A meta-analysis concluded that calcium supplementation of at least one gram daily during pregnancy appears to reduce the risk of preeclampsia by approximately 50%. What are the clinical findings in eclampsia, in preeclampsia? In the past, the clinical diagnostic triad included in the past. One, hypertension. Two, proteinuria. Three, edema. In the recent, edema has been removed as a diagnostic criteria because at it is too frequent an observation during normal pregnancy to be useful in diagnosing preeclampsia. In addition to the clinical finding of hypertension and proteinuria, women with preeclampsia may complain of scotomata, blood vision, pain in the epigastrium, or right upper quadrant. Examination often reveals brisk patellar reflexes and clonus. Laboratory abnormalities include 1. Elevated hematocrit. 2. Lactate dehydrogenase. 3. Serum transaminases. 4. Uric acid. 5. Thrombocytopenia. Although biochemical evidence of DIC may be detected with increased fibrin degradation products, hypofibrinogenemia and prolongation of prothrombin time and activated partial thromboplastin time usually are seen only in cases of complicated by eruption of multiple organ failure. Preeclampsia is classified into mild or severe based on the degree of hypertension and proteinuria and the presence of other findings. We're talking about the HELP, the HELP syndrome. It's a variant of preeclampsia that is characterized by hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. It complicates 10% of cases of severe preeclampsia and up to 50% of cases of eclampsia. Right upper quadrant pain, nausea, vomiting, and malaise are common. Hypertension and proteinuria are variable. The hallmark of the disorder is macroangiopathic hemolysis, leading to elevation of serum lactate dehydrogenase level and fragmented red blood cell on peripheral smear. Transaminase levels are elevated, thrombocytopenia is present, and DIC may be evident. Management is similar to that of severe preeclampsia plus severe gestational hypertension. There's a graph there, please, about mild preeclampsia and severe preeclampsia. Go through it. What are the complications of preeclampsia? This include things like preterm birth, two, intrauterine fetal growth restrictions, three, placental abruption, four, maternal pulmonary edema and eclampsia. So, NB, the estimated incidence of, class of eclampsia is one to three per a thousand preeclampsia patient, one to three. So eclampsia is defined as one or more generalized convulsions in the setting of preeclampsia. So new onset, then this is just new onset grandma seizures. How do we treat, how do you treat preeclampsia? How do you treat the HELP syndrome? How do you treat severe gestational hypertension? So, but so, in the management of preeclampsia, with few exceptions, maternal interests are best served by immediate delivery. However, 
this approach may not be in the best interest of the fetus in case of prematurity, which is very true. In cases of prematurity, the fetus may benefit from a period of expectant management during which corticosteroids are administered to accelerate fetal maturation. The decision to proceed with immediate delivery versus expectant management is based on several factors including disease severity, fetal maturity, maternal and fetal condition, cervical status. So, how do we treat mild preeclampsia? Women with mild preeclampsia are hospitalized for further evaluation and if indicated, delivery. If mild preeclampsia <coughs> if mild preeclampsia is confirmed that the gestational age is 40 weeks or greater, delivery is indicated. At gestational ages of 37 to 40 weeks, cervical status is assessed and if favorable, induction is initiated. If cervical status is unfavorable, pre-induction cervical ripening agents are used as needed, then induced. Occasionally, women with very unfavorable cervical examinations between 37 and 40 weeks may be managed expect expectedly for a limited time with bed rest antepartum fetal surveillance and close monitoring of maternal conditions including blood pressure, blood pressure measurement every four to six hours and daily assessment of patellar reflexes, the weight gain, proteinuria and, and, and symptoms and proteinuria and symptoms. So a complete blood count and levels of serum transaminases and uric acid should be checked weekly to twice weekly. Delivery is indicated if one cervical status becomes favorable, two, if antepartum testing is abnormal, three, if the, if the gestational age reaches 40 weeks or there is evidence of worsening preeclampsia. Yes, if expectant management is undertaken after 37 weeks, the patient should understand that the only benefit is a possible reduction in the rate of cesarean birth. Women with mild preeclampsia before 37 weeks gestation are managed expectedly with 1. Bed rest, 2. Twice weekly antepartum testing, 3. Maternal evaluation as above. Then you add, corticosteroids are administered if the gestation age is below 34 weeks. Amniocentesis is performed as needed to assess fetal pulmonary maturity. Occasionally, outpatient management is reasonable in carefully selected reliable asymptomatic patients with minimal proteinuria and normal lab test results. Monitoring should be done from home and disease prevention is, is, an, is an indication for hospitalization and consideration of delivery. The benefit of the benefits of prophylactic intrapartum magnesium sulfate in preventing convulsions in patients with mild preeclampsia have not been demonstrated con con conclusively in literature. B. How do you manage severe preeclampsia? Severe preeclampsia mandates hospitalization. Delivery is indicated if the gestational age is 34 weeks or greater. Fetal lung maturity is confirmed or there is evidence of deteriorating maternal or fetal status. Yeah. Acute blood pressure control may be achieved with hydralazine, labetalone, or nifedipine. The goal of hypertensive therapy is to achieve asystolic blood pressure 
less than 160 millimeters mercury and the diastolic pressure above 105 so 160 over 105 so overlying aggressive control of blood pressure may compromise maternal perfusion of the intervillar space and adversely affect fetal oxygenation so one under drugs you said hydralazine so hydralazine is a peripheral vasodilator that can be given in doses of 5 to 10 mg administered intravenously IV, the onset of action is 10 to 20 minutes and the dose can be repeated in 20 to 30 minutes if necessary. P, B, B, labetalol can be administered in, in doses of 5 to 20 mg by slow IV push. The dose can be repeated in 10 to 20 minutes. Nifedipine is a calcium channel blocker that is given 5 to 10 mg orally. The sublingual route of administration should not be used. The dose can be repeated in 20 to 30 minutes as needed. Management of severe preeclampsia before 34 weeks is controversial. In some institutions, delivery is accomplished regardless of the future maturity. In other, delivery is delayed for a limited number of time to allow the restoration of what was curious for fetal lung maturity. Four large randomized controlled trials comparing magnesium sulfate with other methods of treatment to prevent conversion in women with severe preeclampsia have demonstrated that magnesium sulfate is associated with a significantly lower rate of eclampsia than either no treatment or nemodipine. Nonetheless, tonic clonic conversions may occur despite magnesium sulfate therapy. Yes, so one, magnesium sulfate is initiated. Two, fetal status is monitored continuously. Three, anti-hypertensive drugs are used as needed to maintain a systolic blood pressure below 160, 160 of a mercury and uh, diastolic blood pressure uh, above 105. So 160, 105. So between 33 and 35 weeks, consideration should be done for amniocentesis for pulmonary maturity studies. If mature, immediate delivery is indicated. If immature, corticosteroids are administered and if possible, delivery is delayed 24 to 48 hours. So, between 24 and 32 weeks, antihypertensive therapy is instituted as indicated. Corticosteroids are administered and extensive maternal counseling is undertaken to clarify. To clarify, the risk and benefits of pregnancy prolongation, expectant management is contraindicated in the presence of one, fetal compromise, two, uncontrollable hypertension, three, eclampsia, four, DIC, five, help syndrome, six, cerebral edema, seven, pulmonary edema, eight, evidence of cerebral or hepatic hemorrhage. When severe preeclampsia is diagnosed before 24 weeks gestation, the likelihood of a favorable outcome is low. Counseling should include the option of pregnancy termination and also address the risk and benefits of expectant management. Intrapartum management of preeclampsia. In women with preeclampsia and no contraindication to labor, vaginal delivery is the preferred approach. Cervical ripening agents and oxytocin are used as needed. If Magnesium sulfate is used as a seizure prophylaxis. It, 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 it is used or administered as an IV loading dose of 4 to 6 grams over 20 to 60 minutes, followed by a maintenance dose of 1 to 2 grams per hour. 
urine output and creatinine levels are monitored and the magnesium dose adjusted accordingly to prevent hypermagnesemia. Patellar reflexes and respiratory rate should be assessed frequently. In the presence of patellar reflexes, serum magnesium levels are usually unnecessary. Therapeutic magnesium levels range from 4 to 8 mg per dl. So, loss of patellar reflexes is observed at magnesium levels of 10 mg per dl or higher. Respiratory paralysis may occur at levels 15 mg per dl or above, and cardiac arrest is possible in levels 25 mg per dl. Calcium gluconate 10 ml of 10% solution should be available in the event of hypermagnesemia. To avoid pulmonary edema, total IV fluid should not exceed 100 ml per hour. Pain control is achieved with regional anesthesia or intramuscular or IV narcotic analgesics. Invasive hemodynamic monitoring is reserved for refractory pulmonary edema, adult respiratory distress syndrome, or oliguria are responsive to fluid challenge. If Cesarean section is required. Platelets should be available for possible transfusion for patients with platelet counts below 50,000 millimeters cube. Use of other blood products is guided by clinical lab findings. So, management of eclampsia. In most cases, eclamptic seizures are self-limited, lasting one to two minutes. Ensure airway is clear and prevent injury and aspiration of gastric contents. Give diazepam or lorazepam. This will be used only if seizures are sustained. Nearly all tonic-clonic seizures are accompanied by a prolonged fetal heart rate deceleration, then resolve after the, the seizure has ended. Once the patient has stabilized, delivery is indicated. If, a possi if, if possible, a 10 to 20 minutes period of in utero resuscitation should be per permitted before delivery. Yes, conversions alone do not constitute an indication for cesarean section. However, if vaginal birth is not possible within a reasonable period of time, cesarean delivery is performed in most of the cases. A number of studies have shown that magnesium sulfate is superior to phenytoin, diazepam, and alitic octate in preventing recurrent seizures in women with eclampsia. So this is the quality objective objective care protocol on preeclampsia and eclampsia, and they say uh, they are defining uh, preeclampsia as a disorder of widespread vascular endothelial malfunction and vasospasms that occurs after twenty weeks gestation and can present as late as four to six weeks postpartum. It is clinically defined by hypertension and proteinuria with or without pathologic edema. These are part of, the, of a spectrum of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, including chronic hypertension, preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension, you have gestational hypertension, you have preeclampsia and eclampsia. Preeclampsia is the third leading pregnancy-related cause of death after hemorrhage and sepsis. Res, something about res, small, a small thing about res is that the frequency of mortality differ among the race and ethnicity with 
black women having a worse mortality rate than white women age so preeclampsia occurs more frequently in women at extremes of reproductive age young women less than 20 years have a slightly increased risk premergravid women in particular seem to be predisposed older women above 35 years have a marked increased risk genetics so genetics also plays a role so these are maybe you say risk factors so race age genetics uh, what are the risk factors for preeclampsia for preeclampsia and eclampsia pregnancy related pregnancy associated risk factors one chromosomal abnormalities two hydatidiform mold three multiple pregnancies so the incidence is increased in twin gestations but is unaffected by the zygosity four oocyte donation of donor insemination five urinary tract infections so maternal specific risk factors those were pregnancy associated risk factors these are maternal specific risk factors so you have extremes of age less than 20 above 35 you have the black race we have family history of preeclampsia duliparity so it's more common in premergravida so preeclampsia uh, we have change of male partner we have diabetes we have obesity 4.3% for women with bmi less than 20 Uh, to 13% for, for to, to 13% for those women who are BMI above 35 kg per meter kg i don't know per what so and then there's chronic hypertension there's renal disease there's collagen vascular disease this is anti phospholipid syndrome this periodontal disease this vitamin D deficiency so vitamin D deficiency may increase the risk of preeclampsia and fetal growth restrictions so eclampsia what is eclampsia eclampsia is characterized by convulsions convulsions fits in the absence of other medical conditions predisposing to convulsions in a woman with preeclampsia so preeclampsia plus convulsions or fits it is eclampsia so impending eclampsia so impending eclampsia means that the that eclamptic fits are likely to occur very soon usually in a woman with severe preeclampsia symptoms and signs of impending eclampsia include severe headache drowsiness visual disturbances epigastric pain nausea and vomiting a sharp rise in bp decreased urinary output increased proteinuria hyperreflexia so the classification of preeclampsia and eclampsia you need to look at that that graph and see so the characteristic of eclampsic eclampsic fits convulsions may occur regardless of the severity of hypertension uh, they are difficult to predict and typically occur in the absence of hyperreflexia headaches or headaches or visual changes convulsions oh, are tonic clonic and resemble grand mal seizures of epilepsy seizures may seizures may occur may recur in rapid sequence as in status epilepticus and end in death convulsions may be followed by coma that last minutes or hours so and then 25% of eclampsic fits occur after delivery of the baby what are the stages of eclampsic fits an eclampsic fit is similar to an epileptic fit and has the following stages one 
pre-monitoring stage. This lasts 10 to 20 seconds during which, one, the eyes roll or stare, two, the face and hand muscles may twitch, three, there is loss of consciousness. B, the tonic stage. This stage lasts 10 to 20 seconds during which, one, in the tonic stage, the muscles will go stiff or rigid, two, the color of the skin becomes blue or dusky, three, the back may be arced, four, the teeth are clenched, five, the eyes bulge. Uh, so, and then see the clonic stage. Yes. So, this stage lasts one to two minutes and is marked by one, violent contraction and relaxation of the muscles occur, two, increased saliva causes forming in the mouth, three, deep noisy breathing, four, inhalation of mucus or saliva, the face looks congested, uh, filled with blood and, and is swollen. The tongue is beaten by violent action of the jaws. So, D, the coma stage. This may last minutes or hours. During this time, there is a deep state of unconsciousness. Two, breathing is noisy and rapid. Three, cyanosis fades, but face remains congested and swollen. Four, further fits may occur before the woman regains consciousness. Differential diagnosis of eclampsia. How, how, what are the differential diagnosis of eclampsia? One, eclampsia must be differentiated with other conditions that are associated with conversions and coma, things like epilepsy, one, cerebral malaria, meningitis, head injury, cerebrovascular accidents, intoxication, things like drugs, alcohol, poisoning, or we talk about things like drug withdrawal, uh, metabolic disorders, water intoxication, encephalitis, hypertensive encephalopathy, hysteria. So, uh, these are not now. Edema exists in most pregnancies, but a sudden increase in edema or facial edema is more concerning for preeclampsia. Facial or are more increasing. So, investigations in uh, preeclampsia and eclampsia. So, one, we do a CBC, complete blood count and peripheral smear yes uh, uh, if you have uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia uh, you are investigating for micro microangiopathic hemolytic anemia which is a help syndrome you are investigating for thrombocytopenia which is less than 100,000 you are investigating for hemoconcentration it may occur in severe preeclampsia. You are investigating for schistocytes on peripheral smear. Two, you are doing a liver function test. So transaminases levels are elevated from hepatocellular injury and in HELP syndrome. Serum creatinine levels, the levels are elevated due to in due to decreased intravascular volume and decreased glomerular filtration rate. You do urinalysis for proteinuria, you do abdominal coagulation profile, you do prothrombin and APTT, they are elevated, APTT in a prothrombin and, and APTT are elevated. Disseminated intravascular coagulopathy testing will show fibrin split products and decreased fibrinogen levels. Uric acid, you will find hyperuricemia. Is one of the earliest lab manif manifestations of preeclampsia. Ultrasound, ultrasonography. This is used to assess the status of the fetus as well as to evaluate for growth restrictions. Typically, 
asymmetrical intrauterine growth restrictions. Apart from transabdominal ultrasonography, umbilical artery Doppler ultrasonography should be performed to assess blood flow. to assess blood flow. So, management of patients with preeclampsia or eclampsia. This is how we, we manage these patients with eclampsia and preeclampsia. So, general principles. BP control. Yes? So, the goal is to lower BP to prevent cerebrovascular and cardiac complications while maintaining uteroplacental blood flow. Control of mildly increased BP does not appear to improve perinatal mobility or mortality. In, in fact, it is associated with reduced birth weight. Antihypersensitive treatment is indicated for diastolic pressure above 105 and systolic above 160. Although, though patients with chronic hypertension may tolerate higher values, patients with severe preeclampsia who have BP below 160 over 105 may benefit from antihypertensives because of the possibility of unpredictable acceleration of the disease and sudden increase in hypertension. The treatment goal is to maintain diastolic blood pressure between 90 and 100 and systolic pressure between 140 and 155. Atenol AC inhibitors, ARBCs, Diuretics should be avoided. Control of seizures. The basic principle of airway, breathing, circulation should always be followed. Active seizures should be treated with IV, magnesium, sulfate as first-line treatment. Prophylactic treatment is indicated for all patients with severe preeclampsia. Magnesium levels, respiratory rate, reflexes, and urine output must be monitored to detect magnesium toxicity. Magnesium sulfate is mostly excreted in the urine and therefore urine output should be assessed. If urine output falls below 20 mL per hour, the magnesium infusion should be stopped. Be aware the risk of seizures following delivery. Up to 44% of eclampsia cases have been reported postnatally. This, the risk is especially elevated 48 hours postpartum but can occur anytime up to 4 weeks after the delivery. For seizures refractory to magnesium sulfate therapy, Benzodiazepines and or phenytoin may be considered. Fluid management. Despite the peripheral edema, patients with preeclampsia are intravascular volume depleted with high peripheral vascular resistance. Diurotics should be avoided. Aggressive volume resuscitation may lead to pulmonary edema, which is a common cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. Pulmonary edema occurs more frequently 48 to 72 hours postpartum probably due to mobilization of extravascular fluid. Because volume expansion has no demonstrated benefit, patients should be fluid restricted when possible at least until after the period of postpartum diuresis. Total fluid should be total fluid should generally be limited to 80 mL per hour or 1 mL per kg per hour. Careful Measurement of fluid input and output is advisable, particularly, particularly in the 
immediate postpartum period. Many patients have a brief up to six hour period of oliguria following delivery. This should be anticipated and not overcorrected. If fluids are required, preferably use the ringer's lactate or normosaline at a rate of 80 ml per hour or 1 ml per kg per hour. Avoid using dextrose or dextrose saline infusions. Delivery. Delivery is the definitive treatment for antipartum preeclampsia. Patients with mild preeclampsia are often induced after the seven weeks gestation. Prior to this, the immature fetus is treated with expectant management with corticosteroids to accelerate lung maturity in preparation for early delivery. In the patient with severe preeclampsia, induction of, of delivery should be considered after 34 weeks gestation. In these cases, the severity of the disease must be weighed against the risk of prematurity. Eclampsia is common after delivery and, uh, and has occurred up to six weeks postpartum. Patients at risk should be monitored closely. Preeclampsia patients may present with recurrent preeclampsia up to four weeks postpartum. Magnesium sulfate remains first line in treatment of in treatment of prevention of primary and current eclamptic seizures, anticonvulsants in preeclampsia. So, magnesium sulfate works by antagonizing calcium channels of the smooth muscles. So, administer IV or IM for seizure prophylaxis in preeclampsia. Use IV for a quick onset in true eclampsia. The loading dose for magnesium sulfate. Magnesium sulfate, 20% solution, 4 grams IV over 5 minutes. Follow promptly with 10 grams of 50% magnesium sulfate solution, 5 grams in each buttock as deep IM injection with 1 ml of 2%, lignocaine in the same syringe. Ensure a septic technique in this practice. Warn the woman that a feeling of warmth will be felt when magnesium sulfate is given. If convulsions occur after 15 minutes, give 2 gram, two gram magnesium sulfate IV over 5 minutes. Maintenance dose. Give 5 grams magnesium sulfate 50% solution plus 1 ml one of dignocaine 2% IM every 4 hours into alternate buttocks. Continue magnesium sulfate treatment for 24 hours after delivery or the last conversion, whichever occurs last. If 50% solution is not available, give IG, give 1 gram of 20% magnesium sulfate solution IV every hour by continuous infusion. Monitor woman for signs of toxicity. Before, repeat the registration ensure that respiratory rate is at least 16 per minute. Uh, the particular reflexes are present. The urinary output is at least 30 mils per hour over, over preceding 4 hours. Without delay, the magnesium sulfate, if respiratory rate is below 16, if the patella reflexes are absent, if the urinary output falls below 30 mils per hour over the preceding 4 hours, yes, keep Keep antidote ready, which is calcium gluconate. In case of respiratory arrest, assist ventilation which with a mask, a must, with a <coughs> a must, a must, assist ventilation with a mask, a bag, anesthesia, apparatus, intubation. Give calcium 
gluconate 1 gram 10 ms of 10% solution IV slowly until calcium gluconate begins to antagonize magnesium sulfate effects and respiration begins. 2. Phenytoin has been used successfully in eclamptic seizures, but cardiac monitoring is required due to associated bradycardia and hypotension. Central anticonvulsant effect of phenytoin is by stabilizing neuronal activity by decreasing the ion flux across depolarizing membranes. The many benefits of using phenytoin are one, it can be used orally for several days until the risk of eclampic seizures has subdued. Two, it has established therapeutic levels that are easily tested. Three, it has no known neonatal adverse effects associated with the short-term use, short use, the dosage of phenytoin, 10, 10 mg per kg loading dose infused IV, no faster than, P, than 50 mg per minute, followed by maintenance dose started at 2 hours later, later at 5 mg, started at 2 hours later at 5 mg per kg. So in the absence of magnesium sulfate, diazepam is used in the following manner. Diazepam scheduled for severe preeclampsia and eclampsia IV administration. The loading dose for diazepam. Diazepam 20 mg IV slowly over 2 minutes. If convulsions occur, repeat loading dose. Maintenance dose. Diazepam 40 mg in 500 ml of IV fluids, or which could be nomosaline or linga slacted, titrated to keep the woman sedated but can be aroused. Maternal respiratory depression can occur when dose exceeds 30 mg in one hour. Assist ventilation if necessary. Do not give more than 100 mg in 24 hours. Rectal administration of diazepam. Give diazepam rectally when IV access is not possible. The loading dose is 20 mg in 10 ml syringe. Remove the needle. Lubricate the barrel and insert the syringe into the rectum to half its length. Discharge the contents and leave the syringe in place, holding the buttocks in place for 10 minutes to prevent expulsion of the drug. Alternatively, the drug may be installed into the rectum through a catheter. If convulsions are not controlled within 10 minutes, administer an additional 10 mg per hour or more depending on size of the woman and her clinical response. Anti hypertensives to come hydralazine yes so anti-hypersensitives to use in preeclampsia and and eclampsia is hydralazine which is also called apresoline hydralazine or apresoline the first line therapy against preeclampsia hypertension it decreases systemic vascular resistance through direct vascularization of arterioles resulting in, in reflex tachycardia Reflex tachycardia and resultant increased cardiac output help reverse uteroplacental insufficiency, a key concern when treating hypertension in a patient with preeclampsia. Adverse effects to the fetus are unknown. Dosage of hydralazine or apresoline. Give 5 mg IV slowly over 10 minutes if BP is 160 over 110. Repeat 5 mg. Uh, Q 20 minutes to administer. Repeat 5 mg after 20 minutes to uh, to maximum of 20 mg. I don't know it. I realize in 12.5 mg. Oh, 
or hydralazine 12.5 mg IM every 2 hours as needed. Labetalol. This is the recommended second line therapy that produces vasodilation and decreases systemic vascular resistance. It has alpha 1 and beta antagonist effects and beta 2 agonist effects. Onset of action is further than hydralazine. Effects to the fetus are unknown. Dosage of labetalol. Give 20 mg bolus. Give doses of 40 mg followed by 80 mg IV at 10 to 20 minutes intervals to achieve the control to a maximum of 300 mg. May also be administered by continuous IV infusion at 1 mg per kg per hour. Ifedipine. It relaxes coronary smooth muscles producing coronary vasodilation which in turn improves myocardial oxygen delivery. Sublingual administration is generally safe despite theoretical concerns. The dosage for nipedipine is initial dosage is 10 mg orally of, of um, orally when BP is above or at 160 over 110. One may repeat after 30 minutes if needed. Definitive management of preeclampsia and and easy with the Kama, definitive management ya mild preeclampsia unasema. Establish the mother can rest at home. Advice on the importance of bed rest. Give oral antihypertensives. Yes. So X medel dopa to 50 mg TID. Maintain the astolic PP at 92, 100. So medel dopa, okay. Monitor maternal and fetal condition weekly. Advice on worsening of signs condition and they need to report if any signs of severe preeclampsia are present. Advise mother to take food rich in protein, fiber, and vitamins, but low on carbohydrates and salt. Yes. Severe preeclampsia. What you do, you admit the patient. You nurse patient in a semi-dark room. Wow. Monitor vital signs every 15 to 30 minutes. You start magnesium sulfate regime. You monitor fluid intake and urinary output. Do blood chemistry, liver enzyme, and creatinine. If diastolic blood pressure is 110 or more, start antihypertensive drugs, things like hydralazine. If hydralazine is not available, give labetalol or nifedipine. Management of eclampsia. You one, you call for help. Two, you maintain an open airway. Three, you control fits. Four, control BP and measure quarterly, hourly, every 15 minutes. Start IV line, but restrict food intake to avoid pulmonary and cerebral edema. Maximum of 30 drops per minute. Catheterize and closely monitor fluid intake and urine output. Management of a fitting patient. Patient should be put on semi-prone position, um, so saliva and mucus drain out. Loosen tight-fitting clothing. No attempt should be made to insert any instruments into the mouth. Administer magnesium sulfate or diazepam. Aspirate secretions from mouth or nostrils as necessary. You give oxygen continuously during the during and after and five minutes after fit. Fitting should be allowed to complete its course without restraining the patient. Privacy and dignity of the patient must be observed. Delivery is the only cure for eclampsia and preeclampsia.
complications of preeclampsia or eclampsia may include the following. What are these complications? Abrutio placentae with DIC, number one. Two, we have renal insufficiency and failure. Three, we have hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet counts. That is the HELP syndrome. Four, we have cerebral hemorrhage. Five, we have maternal death and or fetal demise. Prognosis. Early detection and frequent obstructive assessment and prompt management improves prognosis. A history of preeclampsia increases a woman's subsequent risk of vascular disease, including 1. Hypertension, 2. Thrombosis, 3. Ischemic heart disease, 4. Myocardial infarction, 5. Stroke. Yes.